0: listening to the journey home podcast
1: Welcome to the Journey Home podcast. This is Matthew Starrett. I'm a psychotherapist and musician based in Surrey, UK. The premise for the Journey Home is to offer space for conversation with those sharing a lived experience of addiction, mental health, and a multitude of topics that resonate with the guest. The aim is to promote awareness of the dialogue content and serve as a pathway to therapeutic services. My guest this week is Graham Music. Graham is an acclaimed psychotherapist, trainer and author, and has worked at the internationally renowned Tavistock Clinic in London for over 20 years. His clinical work in the NHS has been primarily with issues of trauma and the effect of maltreatment on children, as well as on the families and other adults in the lives of such children. In addition to his clinical work, Graham has written a number of books, contributed to various psychotherapy journals and continues to provide bespoke training in the UK and further afield. It was actually via Paul Gilbert, one of my guests on this season, that I became aware of Graham. And I knew after learning a bit more about him that I really wanted to get him on the show. Attachment theory is something that I continually find myself reflecting on both in my personal and professional life. I think it's so important and gives us as humans such wise insight into why we are the way we are, why we might do the things we do in relationships. So I was really pleased to be able to speak in depth with Graham about this and I hope it's helpful. It certainly was to me. You'll hear that actually it was coming through in many of the other questions, which to me just shows how important it is. I was really, really taken aback actually when Graham told me the story of John Bowlby who developed attachment theory actually being a kind of outsider um, at the Tavistock uh, where Graham has worked for a number of years and this led on to us discussing the cliques that can exist in psychotherapy and how actually it's not that helpful Um, you know there are certainly reasons why people do this and people feel really strongly about their chosen modality but actually how detrimental that can be to certainly working with a client but also in the broader scheme of things, around psychotherapy, and Graham covers this really, really excellently. Graham also talks about his experience of therapy, which was really useful to me. But also, I think is is so important, you know, knowing that you can and should interview your therapist. You don't have to settle for someone who doesn't feel right. Uh, it's it's very likely going into therapy, there will be, you know, unconscious stuff going on, and it's it's the therapist's role to to hold that. Um, but if you do feel really uncomfortable, you know you have autonomy to leave that relationship. And also, as Graham said, it can sometimes be really helpful. And this is from a, a relational and attachment lens of actually talking about it. You know, giving giving that space because so often we don't have those chances. You know, it brings up the the idea of endings and how there are many endings in life, but many. We don't actually get to say how we feel around them or, or talk about them. They they can happen and we have to move on pretty quickly. I was really in awe of how Graham was able to just draw in so many different ideas and theories in support of what he was you know, what he was talking about around attachment, around therapy, us as humans, all that kind of stuff. So it was it was really interesting. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Graham Music. I'm joined by Graham Music. Graham, thanks for coming on the podcast. Great pleasure to be here. Graham, tell me about your journey into psychotherapy. What influenced you entering this line of work?
0: It's such a great question because, of course, where does one start? (laughs) Does one start with an intergenerational history? Mm -hmm. Does one start with a kind of history of um, trauma and oppression going back many, many generations? Or does one start in the womb or postnatally with parents who really didn't know how to be the parents that we might want? And so we had to start looking after. So I suspect my historical roots go back a long, 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 long way. And I was always interested in people, in relationships, in what makes people tick, possibly defensively in the earlier part of my life. So I needed to know what people. thinking feeling in order for me to feel safe and so that became something i carried with me quite deeply but i didn't train to be a psychotherapist till my late 20s so i did try a whole range of other things and i think i probably didn't train because i didn't have the confidence that anybody would would accept me and i and i think i probably felt deep down that i probably wasn't well enough or healthy enough or that people would see through me and would have a kind of imposter syndrome and all those sorts of things that young people can carry with them and it was only when I went back into therapy in my late 20s after a bit of a kind of personal crisis that I realized I'm not going to get out of this I'm not leaving this behind this is Mm -hmm. I can do this as well
1: (laughs) yeah and I mean there's so much in there and I really relate to a lot of what you were just sharing and I guess you know do you subscribe then to that notion of Carl Jung's wounded healer or just that lived experience as being really important to actually being able to, to be a psychotherapist, to be in this line of work?
0: Yes, yes and no, I think. So I think if we haven't been wounded sufficiently, if you like using the, the Jungian idea of if, if there isn't enough understanding of, or experience of life, some of life's difficulties, then it's quite hard to reach out to other people in those places, of course. I think there's a danger that we all have good and bad motives for doing this kind of work, I think. And it's possible to come into it because you're a natural rescuer and because we want to make everybody else happy and that's how we felt safer as kids, Or, for example. And that only goes so far, I think. So there are problems with that because sometimes we have to be challenging to be quite courageous we have to be um we have to put people's backs up and that comes a bit more difficult with a bit more difficulty for a lot of us to learn the importance of that and actually the effectiveness of that so it's not just our wounded selves that we take in and often i think in our work what we're doing is we're trying to balance and work with and be aware of our own kind of i suppose emotional blind spots not just in terms of she might be depressed and my mum was depressed, so I find that difficult, but more that actually, I might be better at empathy, but what I might really need to do is challenge the person in front of me. And Mm -hmm. because, I mean, I think one of the things you want to think about today possibly is attachment. And of course, attachment can be thought about in terms of patterns. Mm -hmm. And it's all very well and good understanding a pattern and a dynamic that we reenact time and time again, but we don't change unless those things are challenged In a compassionate way, but in a strong enough way.
1: It's it's really interesting how you you've you've segwayed me into things. I was wondering. There's a couple of questions often. Okay, how am I going to ask this? How will this go? But you've basically just summed up two major things that I did. You know, we spoke before this about you know wanting to explore attachment, but also what you were saying there around the parts we bring, what might be natural for us, but what might be best for the client. Let's see where this goes. So. Let's hold attachment for a second if we can, okay. and I guess it's all going to sort of link, but something you said there was really wonderful and something I wanted to explore with you, which is there are so many, I mean, people listening to this may or may not be aware. There are a multitude of different therapeutical approaches. People may have had therapy and realized the type of therapy they were having. They may have just saw it as talking therapy. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I recognize there is no one size fits all, but let's, let's take balance. And you just said this. So I'm just thinking someone, a, a practitioner would say working psychodynamically that can of course reveal so much important stuff. And obviously we're about yeah. to talk about attachment and all that. Yeah, That can allow for change. It can be really liberating. It can, it can be cathartic. It can give people meaning, all that stuff. And this was the question, and I guess you've kind of answered it, but I'll ask it, is there ever a risk then that it could mean a client stays in kind of the expressing of feelings always. Oh, I can do that, but actually doesn't ever take responsibility. And you spoke about compassion and that that notion of well there needs to be empathy and compassion, but actually we have a responsibility. And if we don't take that responsibility, it's hard to realize change. I mean talk about your thoughts on that and I mean how you manage that and how that's been Let me
0: see I might not have quite understood your question, but let's have a go. So I think we probably all come into this work with different skills, different interests, different predispositions, different weaknesses, fallibilities, things we're frightened of or feel good about and that may or may not inform the kind of psychotherapy that we do and different kinds of psychotherapies might be good for different people but also different people or a particular person might benefit from different kinds of therapies um, but they'll benefit in slightly different 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 ways so for example i was i remember that when i was thinking about training i'd done some art therapy and some psychodrama and been in therapy for quite a long time already and i was thinking about it and i did a, a an introductory course which had quite a lot of psychoanalytic stuff and also had some quite a lot of experiential humanistic stuff and i thought well actually i've got a good brain i've got a good mind i can do the i can do the thinking stuff but i might well use that defensively but actually sitting in a group and having to talk about or express or be in touch with my own feelings scared the living daylights out of me right so that helped me make my decision about what kind of therapy i needed to do for myself mm. and what kind of training i needed to do and what i felt was effective and i think um that all helped me quite a lot and i think had i stayed in a more traditional and i took you know i did come back i did a I did a kind of journey from humanistic integrative and body-informed psychotherapies back into psychiatric therapies and i wouldn't do without any of them either of them any of it actually i've got a quite, broad, I've quite i've got i've got quite broad therapeutic church inside me if you like but yeah. i know that to start with i needed that for myself so in terms of my own therapeutic needs i needed to be challenged emotionally and in my body and to be present in a different different kind of way and i think that's absolutely true with a lot of clients a lot of patients on the other hand i think that i was having um as you do i was having a discussion with a with a good friend last night in a in a in a bar and about he's a mindfulness senior very senior mindfulness person and and we were talking about somebody who might present with i don't know some psychosomatic symptoms like tension in the jaw and he was saying well um because he has a non-duality approach and he really kind of knows deeply inside himself that sense of the wonderfulness of life outside of the symptoms he would have a way of moving outside it and finding something better and i was thinking well actually i think i want this person to 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 be in touch with feelings that she's holding on to and defending against which might well have long historical roots and might well be to for example um with anger with about things that happened to her that shouldn't have happened to her as a child and that through that process then these symptoms would disappear because the because the symptoms are there because she's defending against feelings that she can't allow because they're too painful now actually our approaches aren't that different interestingly mm. yeah, because yeah. they're both about kind of allowing something to be yes in slightly different ways
1: I, I really hear that and you know i recognized you know in that question the the nature of it i recognize can feel quite confusing so you know i work integratively have always valued that from a, a personal standpoint because i guess for me it was one of those first times where i learned there is no right or wrong. You know, you spoke about historical trauma. And and I guess, you know, I heard, you know, I was kind of thinking of like dogmatism and all that kind of stuff. But I recognize in any line of work, and we're talking about psychotherapy, but for people listening who may not be psychotherapists, they may have experienced this. It can be really helpful to to own and champion a belief. But when there's that risk of dogma, depending on someone's history, it could be really wounding. And And how do we sort of navigate that? You know, be able to, you, know, you spoke about psychoanalytics. So obviously, I'm aware of the ego, but literally, sort of, who's it for kind of thing? You know, I'm, I've remembered thinking that sometimes, like, who, who is this for? And you touched on that a bit, like, okay, I might want to do this, but this person might need to do this, and vice versa. We,
0: you know, exactly. So, if you, you know, like the old adage, if you've got a hammer, you see all you see is a, a nail in front of you. And, and I think we have to be quite humble in our work and realize that, hey, we don't know what everybody needs. And we can't, it, there's not. One way of working with everybody, and we need help from all of our all of our colleagues. And as we speak, there's the most horrendous set of um, circumstances going on in the world. You know, very serious war in the Middle East, shocking stuff Mm. going on in Eastern Europe, stuff going on all over the world, and a lot of that comes from a very profound, powerful belief in people's righteousness and other people's wrongness, and a kind of dehumanising other people. And I hate to say it, but the world of psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Is, it's a long way from being immune to that and we should know better and so that you know it's it, you know, there's something about I really wish I felt I belonged much more in all kinds of different ways and places and things and clubs and stuff yeah it's not just the Gratcho Marx thing which I do have a bit of which you know <laughs> no, I don't want to join a club that will have me as a member but it's also that I do want to be in a club but I don't want to be a club that only can think five thoughts and not the other hundred,
1: you know. absolutely. And- well, could could you say a bit more about that? I, I was really interested in that As you say we're we're a long way off the immunity of that because I've I found myself, you know, I guess part of doing this podcast was, you know, you talk about imposter syndrome, and I was thinking, let's give it a go and see if anyone will listen and see what happens. But actually, I've spoken to so many different people, and it's been incredibly. You know, I've found I've I've learned so much. I continue to learn. I I found it actually a platform to speak with people who are often saying the same thing. You know, they may go into a certain place and almost be challenged. And actually it's like, I valued this space of being, well, let's just talk about it. And if there wasn't a right or wrong, you know, it's not about not having beliefs and being passionate, but I had a had a guest on the first series called Seth Gillahan, who is a, uh, I don't know if you know him, he's from the States, a mindful CBT practitioner. Uh-huh. And I just, I loved the way he summed it up. He said during his training, he remembers the psychodynamics kind of looking at the CBTers and thinking, oh, you know, that's great. Isn't that sweet with their with their data? That's great. But they're not as smart as us. And then the CBTers kind of thinking, well, they've got no evidence. You know, what are they basing it on? It's just not real. And it's like, there's a reason that people might be thinking that, but where do we go with that? How does that benefit anyone? And yeah. to,
0: yeah. what is the motivation for that thought? And it strikes mm. me. A bit like I often use the metaphor of um, when there's a threat, we close in. Even plants like the Mimosa pudica it closes its leaves when there's a when it senses threat or danger. One of the great psychonetic thinkers, Wilfred Beyond, talks about the danger and the threat of the new idea against which we might—and by idea he means actually a way of being as well. Yes. it's much deeper. It's not just in the head. So I hail from the Tavistock. Where I did, you know, I worked there for the best part of 30 years on and off. And I also um, trained there and taught there and until recently worked there or in parts of it. And it's got a checkered history. So, what, what you would want is that if somebody comes in with a new idea, if I'm trained psychedelically and I hear about this thing called CBT or compassion focused therapy or um, a form of embodied somatic experiencing, whatever it is, I, think I'm, I hope I would be able to say, wow. That looks really interesting. I don't throw everything out that I've learned, but can I open my mind and heart to this new idea? It's a bit scary because mm-hmm. it's new and it might challenge what I think and what I feel, but can I dare to be open? Mm-hmm. And in some ways that's very similar to what one does in good mindfulness is you you, you don't close in, you open up to the next experience, yeah. the next moment, the next thought, the next feeling, yeah. and you try to ride ride the waves as opposed to fighting against them which doesn't work of course as <laughs> many spiritual teachers have taught us so mm. in the Tavistock for example when John Bowlby invented attachment theory so we're leaving attachment theory dangling <laughs> you know, it yeah really yeah to come back to it but when attachment yes. theory when he started it he was a very very unpopular figure and he was until he died actually within the Tavistock because wow. this was far too dangerous a new idea because it wasn't about the unconscious internal world. It wasn't about um, innate, I don't know, drives towards for sex or aggression or destructiveness or those sorts of things. And so he often sat on his own in a room and had a few acolytes around him, but and he was one of the most influential figures in his whole generation, in the outside world, but in the Tavistock, he wasn't especially. And I think that's incredibly sad. And if you don't fit in there, there is an in-group and out-group thing that many people have talked about. And I wrote about this in a book called The Good Life uh, quite a lot as well. That, um, But of course, some of the best and worst in human nature is about belonging. I mean, it's mm. so good when you're part of a group and you're accepted and you're careful and you're appreciated. And it it it, it fires up all those wonderful hormones. Especially, you know, People talk a lot about oxytocin, but of course, the dark side of oxytocin is it makes you suspicious of people in the out-group as well as kind to people in your in-group it makes you generous and thoughtful and reflective and understand and empathize with people who like who like you but it makes you really want to push away people who you don't like and it's a very very tribal world so even within psychoanalysis you know the Winnicottians didn't speak to the Anna Freudians didn't speak to um, <laughs> Kleinians very much for years and it, it makes me sad and I understand why because maybe something about the stress of the work and the kind of challenges that makes us
1: defensive it's, it's it's really sad and i just you know i feel like i wanted to come in and you know i'm so I almost feel like protective of balby i didn't yeah, know yeah. that i didn't know that yeah. and i was thinking no, really. you know when i came into my it's something that i came across through personal work training and then so obviously it's you know worlds have come together through different experiences but i, I find myself continually fascinated by it but if i'm honest going back i I think there was a kind of assumption. Well, he must have been pretty big time if he if he came up with this. People must have loved him, you know. And, and to well, he hear that, he was pretty
0: big. He was pretty big time in the sense that you know he wrote, he advised the World Health Authority, you know, organization. He was massively important internationally, but in his own backyard, he wasn't. And, you know, I went to a conference two weeks ago actually about, about a guy called David mallon who may may not have heard of. He he advised yeah. uh, a form of short term intensive um psychotherapy, which is then being taken forward by a bunch of people in the States. And I think it's actually a very, very helpful way of thinking. Yes. He died a couple of years ago at ninety-eight. He again was one of those people that very few people spoke to within the Tavistock. He wasn't ever really recognized there. And it's not about the Tavistock, it's this is what happens often within institutions. So how can we be humble and interesting, and curious enough to be open to the next idea that comes, even if it challenges uh, rather cherished tenets.
1: Definitely. And and of course, you know, as you're saying there, that that covers so many areas. Just you know, the tribal nature, the primal. Even it could be a you know somebody joining a new organisation and recognising there are some things that maybe dare I say are a bit behind. Or you know, I'm even thinking you know there are loads of areas, but they're going to be challenged and they might not be liked. And it's it's that almost playground kind yeah. of thing of you know you yeah. go over there, you're not allowed over here. Well. So let's let's get into attachment then. We've we've kind of spoken around it and you know this is I'm I'm super keen to get your thoughts on this. For those who may be unfamiliar, could you talk a bit about attachment, what it is, and how it affects how we are in relationships?
0: Okay. So the first thing to say, I think, is that there's a kind of everyday, ordinary, colloquial use of the word attachment, which we all do, all use to an extent. And he's not got a very good attachment to his wife or something along those lines and that isn't anything to do with attachment theory that's just a kind of ordinary everyday colloquial use that attachment theorists wouldn't approve of so if we start from the beginning if you like maybe i'll go a bit historical if that's all right please (laughs) devised this set of theories and thinking when he realized that a lot of the people that he was working with or he was researching in those days he would he was working with he researched a group of people who would in those days were called juvenile delinquents now wow. they'd been the from criminal justice system you know but um he found that they all had quite serious challenging early experiences in fact i think it was him who invented the term "adverse childhood experiences and, and that didn't really quite take off till the last few years but also that the role of separation and emotional closeness with a parental figure was really really crucial in these kids Lives and precipitated all kinds of, I suppose, ways of behaving and acting, and not trusting in themselves or other people, which gave rise to the behaviours that got them into the criminal justice system, if you like. Yeah. And so he realised that cr- emotional bonding and closeness was important, and we all take that for granted now. It wasn't taken for granted at the time, especially in upper class Britain. You know, Bulby, in fact, himself was sent to boarding school at a ridiculously young age, and probably the reason why he fared better than his siblings is he had a nanny who lasted a bit longer than his siblings nanny and he didn't see much of his parents one of my great um, mentors was juliet hopkins at the tavernstock child psychotherapist and she's Bobby's niece and we went out for dinner with a few people on saturday actually mm. And she used to tell us that uncle john was invited downstairs when his parents were having dinner to shake hands with his parents so sort of, once a day you know there wasn't a proper <laughs> so he knew the pain of that so mm. he had it in his kind of bones as an understanding so he was fighting against a kind of i suppose more a british upper class but also quite maybe a tough working class attitude that closeness and softness and vulnerability and dependency were not good things you had to be strong and tough that's how the british upper middle classes got an empire and um, did what they did so he was arguing very strongly that we need proximity to caregivers who can care for us? And he, his work actually was misinterpreted a bit, but and I'll, I'll come to that if I can. But yeah, one one of the first things that he he was very influenced by evolutionary thinking, which was, again was very unfashionable at the time, partly because it was, had been so misused both in America and Nazi Germany, of course. And so, but he was very influenced by the good aspects of evolutionary thinking and also the study of animals, which again was very threatening because some people do not like the idea that we are actually quite similar in yeah kinds of bodily and brain functions to just about every other mammal let alone reptilian reptiles and even bacteria and fungi so but certainly at cellular level to to other mammals and so he studied and he was he worked alongside people who studied primates like um um what's his name um got his name now um oh uh yes (laughs) both drawing a blank we can probably fill that in yeah we'll (laughs) we'll fill that in Gap this pause it and come back but um so the the, the, so i mean there were actually quite a few people studying studying monkeys but um so the classic experiment of course was you had a cloth monkey a a wire monkey covered in cloth and a wire monkey which had a bottle and the was it harry but, uh, harlow yeah it was harlow's harlow's monkey harlow, harlow's i do mean, i don't know. Never that anyway so harry Har- harry harry so harlow's monkeys experiment were very classic but there was lots of other ones he used as well but, but he in a way surprised people by the fact that actually these poor little deprived monkeys that didn't have that weren't they were separated from their parents they wanted to spend their time on the cloth and mm. not with it and not on it. and in those days even in psychoanalysis the idea was that actually Babies were born with physiological needs, they needed topping and tailing, they needed keeping warm, and they needed feeding and they needed changing, but they don't didn't need very much affection. Yes. It took quite a long time for that to for that to change. And so this opened up a whole new area, I think, in of understanding children's development and children's needs. It had unfortunate side effects because he was writing after the Second World War, where there was a big political push to get women back into the home. And so his work was misinterpreted and misused to suggest that women Go back into the home because that's for the good of the baby and the baby's health. So one of the things we understand now that we didn't understand then is that we really badly need human connection. We need attuned adults who can be sensitive to us, who can uh, who who we can attach to, but it doesn't have to be the mother. That we are what Sarah Heard calls a cooperative breeding species. So we can be raised in groups, Mm -hmm. and we are evolutionarily as a species we're the only primate species that are cooperatively breeding and that we can interact with many adults within a short period of time and we can attach to quite a few of them it doesn't have to be the biological mother so bobby was incredibly unpopular not only within psychoanalysis but within by feminists as well because his ideas were misused but what he was saying was really fundamentally important He, he made so that was one mistake he made i think but not didn't make many the other another was that he thought that we needed to bond very early on and he used animal models for this so like many animals can imprint on a smell or the sight of a particular it might not even be somebody in their own species it might be you know it might be a a bird might imprint on a human and follow them around as an attachment figure as it were and get anxious when they leave and so he had this idea of early bonding which again has been proven to be wrong and he had an idea that but what he did know is that we need to develop what he called affectional bonds So all people need affectional bonds. That doesn't mean affectionate; it means emotional bonds. And that our security depends on having being around somebody with whom there are affectional bonds, which are two-way. But they can be quite—they're not all lovey-dovey bonds necessarily. And this is where the kind of different categories of attachment theory, yes, um, came online a bit a bit later on. What we know, of course, from the current research is that human, any human adult, if they've been quite badly abused or traumatised and neglected as a child themselves, reward circuitries in their brain fire up at the sight of a strange baby. That we're we're designed to go gooey and and you know, want to bond, want to interact with with babies. We don't do that at the sight of a strange adult at all. So it's no. very much a biologically um, driven process. So that's a very very basic, simplistic backdrop. Mm-hmm. So, we need affectional bonds and they can have different forms. And so, Bowlby's initial work suggested that it was secure or insecure attachment. And I think what I want to say is that there's no such thing as an unhealthy attachment, that every attachment is a very, very clever adaptation to a particular emotional, familial, cultural environment. If we think of A securely attached child you would expect them to cry when their primary caregiver often the mother leaves the room and be relieved when the mother comes back and their heart rate will go up when the mother leaves the room and it will go down again when the mother comes back and they will feel secure that actually there's somebody looking after them in a way the universe feels safe so as soon as the mum comes back you can take no notice of them because they're a bit like you know fish in water they don't know they're in water because this world feels secure because of the presence of this person and so then they can, can go off and play. So that would be an example of a secure person. Yes. And there's different forms of insecure attachment. Is this a helpful you No, know,
1: it, it it is really helpful and I guess what I'm wondering if this if this fits in um I guess what I'm thinking that I think it's really helpful how you had said you know the danger of saying one as bad and one as good especially if you know, the, the sort of irony of if somebody did have adverse early attachment experiences, shame, all that kind of stuff t- to then learn about this stuff and think, oh, well, actually yours was bad. It's, it's not a very great motivator for anything really. No. So, but, but also I think, as you said, it's very clever and, you know, I know we, we both I had him on the show recently, um, know, we both know Paul Gilbert and I've always really, really loved the way he kind of describes attachment and actually validates the experience you know and and also like the how clever the brain is you know the survival fight or flight it brought that up i guess for me it's not about getting rid of the fight or flight but perhaps like, like with mindfulness how we respond and maybe that is that the same with attachments so when we are adults perhaps going oh i want to be this way but will it's is it the best way for me to be rather than i can't be that way push it down and just i don't know how that well, works. Let,
0: let, come back. To, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned Paul, and I think many of us are thinking about him a lot at the moment. And, yes, um, he's, I think, been an utter. he's spearheaded so much important stuff in terms of his capacity for integration and bringing attachment theory into neurobiology, into Buddhist thinking, into into a whole range of different different therapeutic thinking. So, what I would say is that I want for myself and the people I love to feel secure. Yeah, and feeling secure feels good. You know, mm-hmm. your 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 um, your breathing's deep, you feel relaxed, you're more able to empathize, you're more able to give and receive love, all of those sorts of things. Mm. But if I've got a parent who I depend on, mm. as Bobby would say, for my survival, who is very inconsistent and I don't know what she's gonna do next, or he's gonna do next, and a bit chaotic then my attachment style will develop in response to that culture, that familial culture. And so I'm much I'm much more likely then to be a bit hypervigilant, a bit jumpy, a bit watchful. I probably won't be relaxed when I won't be relaxed when she's left he or she's left the room, but I won't be relaxed when she's back in it as well because everything's so uncertain. I might be much more aware of other people's thoughts and feelings. my own might become a psychotherapist for that reason yeah i might um yeah i might um my nervous system will be more activated almost definitely now that will cause problems later on in life but initially it's a brilliant adaptation so if we think about of course about the brain as experience dependent and some of us have been banging on about this for decades now but also that we're, we're probably the most adaptive species on the planet in terms of being born incredibly prematurely yeah. and and we can adapt to fit into just about every kind of physiological environment you know the arctic the sahara but also emotional and cultural environment right you know i can fit into as a newborn baby i can fit into living in an upper class whatever estate and mm. living in a in a in a rainforest or living in the living in the arctic mm. but but that adaptation rather like language development takes place pretty early on and then these things are harder to change later on, yeah and so it's what we think about as a. So that's partly why I think psychotherapy, which is involved with cognition too much, misses the fact that actually these are ways of being in the world. These are ways attachment styles, or if we're going to use that term, are ways yeah. of being in our bodies in the world with other people. They're quite deeply embodied and embedded and inactive, as you know. You know this sort of four or five e idea about the brain it's yeah so it's not in the head it is in the head as well but it's not just in the head so no. I walk into a room with you at a party and I'm a bit anxious or avoidant I might not look at you and I might turn my my I might turn away from you and that will be my avoidance style in my being in my body and so therapeutic world might want to gently challenge those um old patterns if they're getting you into trouble but they've yes. developed for really good reasons
1: yeah as you explained there it's It sounds like a very, again, going back to the being humble and actually validating. And yeah, that's the word that that continues to come up for me is validating, you know, this getting out the right or wrong and the kind of, this is what is, you know, a bit like, again, the biopsychosocial approach. I really like that because if perhaps if we forget bits, you know, almost kind of thinking of, I was thinking, you know, like a sort of imagery of like working on a car, you have to kind of go through everything to learn where the problem might be and how all these things impact it and I mean consciously or subconsciously many people come into therapy wanting to feel better yeah maybe there are some people who and again because I'm I'm not a purely psychoanalytical worker it's not my world so I'm not sure if people sign up and go, right, 50 years, let's do this. Or if actually there's always a sense of, like, I want to feel better. How do you kind of balance this? You know, let's take an attachment, for example. This is what is. It's not about shaming that part or really, you know, resisting it, which we know could lead to persistence, but also it's causing you, it may be causing you problems. You want to feel better. You know, how do you sort of communicate that, I guess, in a in a balanced way, which is because I'm thinking, is there a risk then it could be, okay, insecure, well, you've got to be secure. And if you, you fall off the, the pedestal of secure, you failed somehow, which of course is not helpful. Yeah.
0: Like, so that's bringing in, so it, most people come into therapy with a lot of shame or mm. a lot of anxiety or wishing our symptoms would go away and hating our symptoms because they're getting us into trouble and making me, I don't know, be reactive in relationships or too shy in relationships or eat too much or mm. not eat enough or what, whatever it is that we're struggling, we're struggling we're struggling with. And I suppose, for me, it's not about symptoms. And so it's not about judgment, but it's about trying to make sense of the person in front of us in that ordinary way that we've described before. And also trying to help them see what they might gain from those symptoms, but then what the losses of keeping hold of them might be. So if my, if I have an avoidant attachment, which is one of the, the third of the original categories, yeah. it would have been the case that I would have had parents who couldn't bear my emotions, certainly any negative ones like anxiety, fear, distress, they wouldn't like it if I cried and they will, exp- they will show me that they didn't approve of that somehow just by maybe looking away or shouting at me or whatever it is. So then I will learn to ignore my distress i've still got distress somewhere in my body but i learn to ignore it and to pretend it isn't there so if i come into therapy and i say i've just been i don't know had an unsuccessful relationship I'm, I'm in a lot of distress i might expect that no one in the world including myself can bear the amount of pain that i've got and so i might do almost anything to push it away and i might come to you and say come on mr therapist take my pain away yeah. And, I, and my tendency might be to say actually to just stay with this a bit and let's look at the and you see it in this in the minutiae of how people are in the room so there's no you know unfortunately there's no manual there's millions of manuals but none of them are going to be sufficient for the minutiae of the moment-to-moment inter, interaction that's needed mm. but if somebody looks like they're very upset and then they close down and then they start saying I shouldn't be so upset or then we might point out the defense against the feeling and might try to give permission for that feeling to be an allowable part of themselves and that might also give rise to other feelings like upset or anger that my feelings were never heard and never had a place and there might be quite a lot of grief about that underneath the anger possibly it can be the other way around but if it goes that way around and then we're, we're in the business of kind of allowing things which up until then we've been defending against and the defenses if you like using pure old-fashioned psycholytic thinking but i think you know compassion focused therapy and almost any form of therapy will have a yeah you know, um internal family systems they've all got a very similar model which is that these mechanisms have come into place to try to protect us bloody brilliant that i didn't have to cry I did, that i didn't cry when my parents couldn't stand it because that allowed me to stay in proximity to them and they could raise me without being too disappointed in me yeah. but the costs were huge and now the chickens are coming home to roost
1: something i wanted to explore with you also you know as a as a therapist this can be really hard work and I wonder, you know, how how do you look after yourself? How do you take care? You know, because I'm aware it, it may be that we <laughs> we go for a part two on on some other stuff. We'll see, but um, perhaps there's not space to explore that today. But you know, things like trauma. You know, you I, I'm aware you work with uh, children and adolescents, and and actually, you know, doing this amazing work. But actually, how how heavy it can be? How how hard it can be? You know how how do you look after
0: yourself? Okay, good, fair question. I suppose, I mean, I, I'm a bit kind of long in the tooth now, which means that my work is quite varied. I do a bit of writing. I do quite a lot of supervising. I work with children okay. and adolescents, and I work with adults. And I have a range, I yeah. have a yeah. really interesting, you know, quite a lot of teaching. So I have a range of different things which keep me interested and curious forever. And so that, I, of course, if I didn't get Distressed and overwhelmed by the plight of some of the people that I work with, I wouldn't be able to help them. Um, I hope I've got good enough colleagues and supervisors and experience to be able to process that, but also it also requires something else in our own life. So I said to you but at the beginning, I just suck cycle back from a yoga class first thing <laughs> in the morning. So <laughs> I would be doing things like that, or going to the gym, or yeah. I have a bit of a, a mindfulness practice of my own, or so those are all things which in a way are forms of self-care. As I said, you know, I went to the, I went out last night with a very good friend and we had a, a very deep conversation. So those are the things that keep you going. So the investment isn't just in the therapeutic work. But I also think a kind of compassionate stance to oneself and others makes a big, big difference. Because yeah. I don't feel that I have to cure everybody of everything. I don't feel it's all down to me. I want people to feel better. I yes. do my best and this would be Paul Gilbert's perspective. I think as yeah, well, yeah, yeah. You know, I want, I really want people to feel better, but it's not all down to me and I have to really make it.
1: No. And I wonder if that, you know, this, this could be useful because for me, that links into, I guess, the difference between some of these terms, you know, now compassion, self-compassion. If you, if you Google that loads will come up, which is fantastic. Uh, I think that's a great thing, but there are lots of different meanings, you know, are some, And actually, again, going back to attachment, going back to inherited trauma, all that stuff. You know, you you touched upon. You know, I can't even really made it real for me. Imagining what that must have been like for these early theorists saying some of this stuff in a time when actually, well, you can't say that. That that can't be said. It's so ingrained. And and how you know, as tribal species, even if perhaps it's the left brain that can go, oh, it's fine. Everyone still has their own stuff. You know, however aware or however much work they've done. You know, as you said, it's, it's really deeply embedded. Um, it's historical. So how can someone, you know, I guess, you know, one of my questions it I suppose it makes sense to ask it now, and it links in with this, how could we move you know, as a species to a more compassionate world? One where compassion doesn't mean negating self, because obviously there's a risk, you know, codependency, all that kind of stuff, it, it may appear. I like to help people, but how is that helping? Costing you? But on the flip side, perhaps somebody who may have come into recovery for codependency—you know—it's not about never holding a door open again because we are in. It's okay to be dependent, but coming back to compassion, how can
0: we do that? That's such a vast, huge question, and I think it's always in the moment by moment. Incidentally, as we've talked about Paul a few times, I did a I did a podcast with him, and he did an amazing series on creating a compassionate world, and it has to, in a way start with how we are with ourselves and i think one of the dangers of being a therapist is you can put too much pressure on yourself and there can be a sense of imposter syndrome as well so knowing something about our own limitations is pretty important i wouldn't we, even I really would prefer almost to dodge your question about how can we create a more compassionate world because it's too okay. big a question. That's okay. why I refer to you elsewhere. I, mean, I have written about it actually in The Good Life in Other Places and I, okay. I hope my clinical accounts do that as well. But I, what I do think is that compassion is a motivation and but it's also links with a, a range of states, including empathy, including an understanding of suffering, including the need for courage including the need to fight for what you want for what you believe in but not so much that actually you dehumanize the other which is what we're seeing a lot in the world at the moment you know and i was by the way in you know, my own experience as a psychoanalytic child psychotherapist who had an integrative humanistic first training and then got really interested in neurobiology and attachment and developmental psychology was that actually it's quite difficult for people to accept you because you're not completely in their club, because you're in another club as well, and that yeah. is a really quite a difficult yeah. place to be. How can we straddle these different places, different things? And we should have a degree of, I suppose, being humble, but also nervous. So I, I mentioned Wilfred Bion. He said, I think one of his famous quotes was, "If there aren't two terrified people in the room, I might not use the word terrified, but if there aren't two terrified people in the room, there's no point turning up to find out what you already know." And yeah. so every moment you know i had no idea what you're going to say and what you could look like and what you're going to ask and what i was going to say and i still don't know what i'm going to say but it's but it's an encounter yeah out of that hopefully we can find a way forward if there's a if there's a genuine willingness to meet yeah and to and um, be curious and to be surprised so yeah. for me, play is really important. Now, one of the things about attachment is is that it's often confused. Like attachment is not about love. Attachment is not about care. Attachment is about the ways in which we develop um, relational, intimate, or not so intimate bonding and ways of coping in relationships. And the childhood categories we see examples of these in every adult. And there's lots of rubbish. Written on the internet. So, if I was going to disagree with one thing you said this morning, is that it's great that you can Google it. Because actually, if you, for example, you Googled attachment therapy, you'll get millions, literally millions of answers. Most of them have got nothing at all to do with attachment. No.
1: And and perhaps, perhaps I didn't sort of clarify that. I think, you know, part of that was you can do that but it might not serve you in the best i think but but no an absolute fair point you know i think but again going back to that kind of thing of attachment isn't love it brings up the compassion thing of compassion isn't technically compassion isn't being under a duvet and snuggly and warm and love it's it, it's great that that's a part of it you know and it, it might come into it and i don't know if that's the same with attachment for you you know sense of it's love will...
0: for me it completely is it's so yeah. for example so, um if you are struggling not to feel i don't know anger at your father for abusing you and so you reach for the next bar of chocolate or bottle of wine or um drug or bad bad relationship where you reenact a pattern If I'm just really nice to you you're not going to change that pattern then also needs to be a challenge there needs to be something quite fierce as well as kind and compassionate so the compassion fierceness without the compassion isn't helpful but compassion without the fierceness nearly always doesn't work because I would want to say things like so I think you might be neglecting your real feelings here and harming yourself and do you want to continue to do that yeah that would be compassionate. I think, yeah, but yeah, of
1: course. Well, absolutely, and and it's I guess it's that that thing of it can be threatening, but it's real. Yeah, and you are being compassionate in that moment. So you spoke about the, the variety of things you do, which is super interesting, and you know one of them being a trainer. I can hear that you've done a ton of training, and we've spoken about all these different approaches and being in one club and not accepted by another. Is there anything that you feel you know, in the training world needs to be, needs to be done or needs to be checked out around this, you know, so there isn't perhaps a risk of somebody going into a really intensive training that they've paid a lot of money for coming out, hopefully getting some work, but it could be that they get a job and that organization is saying something different and they think, well, hang on can I do this? I'm not sure if I'm allowed to do this, that they said I wasn't allowed to do this. I I don't know if you could speak a bit about that, like your thoughts as a trainer, you know, a way of actually kind of, of course there has to be, you know, a bit like papers have to be marked. It can't just be, you know, like at school, fantastic. Well done for writing an essay. I'm not giving you a grade. Uh, Okay. But also risking, risking that teacher student thing in a way that is detrimental to, to, to the student's, well-being and moving forward, if if that makes sense.
0: That makes a lot of sense, Matthew, and I think it's a really important question. It links with lots of other stuff that's going on in the world, politically and internationally as well, to do with belonging and not belonging and seeing the other as having respect and having enough humbleness to be able to be interested in in the other. I think one of the dangers of psychotherapy trainings is that well i think i can make a long long list of dangerous psychotherapy trainings but one yes. would be that often people come in wanting to know needing approval seeking approval and that can induce a kind of infantilization of trainees so if we think attachment they yeah. become very dependent on the judgment of the trainer the teacher the supervisor the lecturer the tutor and if you're not careful as one of those senior people you can start to believe your own propaganda to yourself especially if you're more insecure and start thinking you are the one who knows and these yeah. are the people that should be respecting your views and your your opinions and then you've got a very grisly kind of unfortunate gruesome twosome dynamic in which you've got the one who knows and the one who doesn't know and i always encourage trainees to come in and really somehow find a way of believing that they've come onto a training with a huge amount of experience whether it's life experience professional experience that they've got they can use that in the process and so they can be curious and interested and be prepared to challenge their teachers appropriately not to make a point not to score points but yeah. if you're really really interested and vice versa and i'd hope any trainer of any caliber would want to Encourage that as well, and the dangers are is that it might be well, but we don't talk about Winnicott here, or you know, we don't talk about attachment theory here. Or, we don't you know, talk about CBT here. That we can't don't talk about it. CBT yeah. exactly. Well, it's, that's too behavioural. We don't agree with that. We're, yeah. So, and that is just a cutting off. That is not showing any interest or respect.
1: Well, it's it's I'm I'm so happy to hear you say that because I, I hope. It would be helpful to others, but from a purely selfish standpoint, it was almost, there was a bit of me perhaps in there going, I I was kind of right. You know, I I remember, you know, with my training that there were moments of that and it was really difficult, you know, like a sense of almost getting into, you know, thinking CFT is really great and it's almost having to like go outside to learn it, you know, I'm imagining like the child doing their homework and then having to like, oh, go outside the house to learn about that, you know, a bit like I, it, it reminds me of. So before working as a therapist, I was a musician and even thinking about school, you know, being into the Beatles and Frank Zappa and all these different stuff. But this is what you did. So, OK, I had to go out and form a band. And it was amazing. But there was a very there, I remember that sense of kind of you can bring this here. You can't bring this there.
0: Yeah. So in a way, I think the best psychotherapists are in touch with their infantile dependent, vulnerable sides. They're in touch with an adult strong side, but they're also in touch with a kind of a bit of an adolescent, I think and and a healthy adolescent that's what is maybe an insecure one Um, and that's a period in life when we need to experiment and try things on and be Mm. interested and curious and you know we all worry about adolescence and I I would have worried about me if I'd have been my parent as an adolescent but on the other hand I think you know that's part of the job description is to be interested and curious and be a bit rebellious when necessary and Mm. to be a bit challenging because that's how Every species, every mammalian species does that. They might not do attachment the way we do, but you know, even rats start fighting with their elders when they hit their age. And that's how you become be prepared to leave the nest and become your own human being. And yeah. otherwise, you know, I've seen trainees in psychotherapy training start dressing and walking like their teachers. I mean, this is what in psychoanalysis we think about as adhesive identification It's kind of very superficial form of identification whereas what you want is people to be utterly themselves
1: totally but, yeah but
0: but but really interested and in taking in all they can you know i want to be a sponge to the day i die in some ways
1: yes well, and and that that kind of thing of you know i i really love relational psychotherapy and i guess it's there's a there's a superficial version of relational work but there's also an authentic version of relational work um so moving slightly away something just to ask you know, this podcast is called "The Journey Home." I wanted to ask yeah. you, um, what makes
0: your home a home, Graham? <laughs> well, um, this is going to be a podcast with, with audio, but if anybody's watching it, you'll <laughs> see that I'm in a room surrounded by plants. In my twenties, I was—I was—I bought and sold bric-a-brac. I've got quite a lot of the relics there, wow. things that make me feel safe. I'm surrounded by. His, by by books that I've been that I spent far 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 too much money on in my life, and I try not to do it quite so much anymore. But because you know, when I started in this work, I um, I couldn't stop reading. I was forever interested, and so for me, so you know, this is just my psychotherapy home, if you like, which is literally in my in 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 my home. Mm. It links very much with Bowlby, of course. It links very much with the idea that Bowlby described this idea of a safe haven. Uh, which is very which has been taken forward in many trauma therapies these days which is about finding a safe space Mm -hmm. inside yourself or internal compassionate figure or in a good internal object or whatever the true Mm -hmm. self in ifs whatever language we use there's something Mm -hmm. about feeling at home in your own skin and being Mm -hmm. and yeah as somebody who goes back four generations but i've got refugee background as well and so it's quite hard for me to feel that I feel at home in a culture in a society, and mm. that in a way has to come from feeling at home in oneself and feeling a sense of um belonging but not clinging to that belonging. Mm. So I'm finding it particularly painful at the moment, for example, in the world because I have some Jewish heritage. Yeah. Most people I know for, with that heritage are utterly adamant that evil has been perpetrated on them and And then I've got many friends who are very sympathetic to the Palestinian cause and have supported Hamas, for example, and absolutely won't see the other another side of it. And I know that I walk down the street and feel fearful of antisemitism, even though I don't believe in the religion or. Yeah. or yeah. So all of those things are really complicated. So where do you find a place in the world with all this stuff going on? So for me, I think home is it is symbolic, you know, my roof started leaking the other day, and it felt like something very porous had mm. got into my psyche, you know, in a way, my yeah, psyche, yeah, yeah. so there's something, it has to be, it's symbolic, but real, and so I think we need yeah. a variety of secure bases, so for me, it might be my really good mates, my psychotherapy mates, my relationship and relationships, and my friends, really good friendships, but it also might be, it might be more superficial things, the football team which i wish i didn't support or um (laughs) whatever it is or you know the people the person i know that i can go and speak about consciousness with who's read the latest research or my mate who i can think about neuropsych analysis with or my um the people i can just go to the pub with and have a bit of a laugh with but those but it's the pub and my friends and so i would say that in a way it's a bit like it's not i'm not sure what the metaphor is it's not venn diagrams but there's a way in which we need to feel at home in our own skin and in order to do that we need to find homes for ourselves in the world yeah some of us and i include myself in that quite thin skin so actually i find it quite hard to yeah. genuinely feel at home in the world and so yeah, we have yeah. to kind of create these havens if you like
1: I, yeah i i mean i want to say such a great answer because it was exactly what i was sort of hoping for with that question <laughs> you know i wonder where some people could say it's the curtains in my house next but actually that that, that's i really relate to that you know and and also to the to the notion of finding it really difficult you know for me i moved around a lot as a kid the map my map of the world was never really formulated you know so so it's that creating you know finding home in these other places as you say it could be a plant. it could be you know i'm thinking a friend i could speak about philosophy with but also a friend i could speak about Dogs, my love of dogs, with or go for a walk with dogs. You know all those kind of things, yeah, being exactly. being super helpful. It's it's it, and again coming back to that thing, there isn't one right answer. It's kind of formulating that. I guess it's an ever evolving thing in some ways. Like in two weeks, there might be something else that fits into your model of home, as i might be in mine, that really helps or doesn't. I help.
0: really, I really yeah. hope that's the case for both of us, yeah. for anyone yeah. really. And it's where you know I'm quite near Hampstead Heath, and La- I'm not that near, but you know I can walk there in fifteen minutes and. um That's an extension of my home, if you like. But it's a bit like the brain being embodied, embedded, extended, inactive. And there's another one. I always forget the fifth one. But, you know, it's like home is as well, I think, to an extent. But I think in order to, and we need a kind of porousness as well. And, but not too porous. And we need, so we can't have too thick or thin a skin if we're going to be at home in our own skin if it's too thin we never at home because we're always anxious and sense danger if if that skin is too thick because of insecurity then in a way we don't feel genuine at home because there's always there's another kind of threat which is the other the different
1: oh super interesting well I'm um, I'm aware we're, we're coming towards the end um something I, I I realize I haven't asked you and it may be that we have time we don't but um could you could you talk a little bit about your experience of therapy you know how, how you found it you know sitting in the other chair we've spoken about in almost a way i'm imagining you sitting in the therapist chair but actually what's it been like for you has it been positive negative a bit of
0: both i mean how how is it we definitely haven't got time for this but i can give you a few clues <laughs> okay. um, i've had a lot of therapy yeah. over the years i've had a lot i've had some very difficult experiences i've had some utterly amazing mind-blowingly um coming alive experiences mm. I, when I was very young, I had a therapist who fell asleep in the session and then decided to make an interpretation about it. It, it, my my shutdownness gave rise to his falling asleep. What and is I, it about you that makes me fall asleep kind of yeah, stuff? Uh, yeah. And it made me feel absolutely oh my gosh. full of self-hate and you know, so and didn't go back for six or seven years or something. I've had experiences where I was really met so deeply, and it's often the spontaneous moments where mm-hmm. somebody really gets you and says something often hilarious, which will really get, get you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've had sort of diligent, careful, lovely, thoughtful, reflective therapists who really helped in some ways, in other ways, didn't quite meet me. And I've had moments I've been on the couch three, four times a week, and I've been up in chair and I've done body work. And actually had a lot of group work in my life as well. And I wouldn't do without any of it in some ways. Maybe I would do without a bit less lying on the couch free associating i don't know and right i think one of the things i've learned is that i need to be met emotionally and i think most people do and that sometimes something can be said with the best intentions with the right heart somewhere but if it doesn't reach you then it's not going to make a difference and and that can be a gesture that can be um even a movement that can be taking the piss, even if it's the right kind of relationship. It might. Yeah. 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 You know, no, it's, that can be, yeah. It's often embodied. I mean, I have one experience of being in therapy, where, where I was lying on the couch three times a week. And I started doing humanistic training and interested in the body. And I, I felt I wanted to get up. And I realised this was going back 35 years now, I realised that actually lying on the couch felt like a, a submissive pose yeah the danger pose and i was always anxious and i needed to get up and own my strength yeah and i remember getting off up off the couch and she said to me goodness you look like you thought i was going to hit you and i was somebody who was hit and i know that experience and i needed to kind of own my i need to be face to face in that moment there are other times when i needed to be yeah. on the couch. i think you know what i would say if anybody's seeking a therapist and wants yep. some advice is bloody well make sure that you trust your gut and speak to people about it and don't just go don't just be grateful that anybody will see you
1: well you you answered you answered a question i wanted to ask again with that because i mean it's so inspiring like that that's what i recognize i'm I'm really feeling is just so inspired by that you know it's it's really really amazing like you can say what you need in therapy you can choose your therapist you can interview them You know, it's, you have autonomy and you should, yeah.
0: And obviously our unconscious early experience dynamics will come into play because I might, oh God, well, I completely have to depend on them and agree with everything they say, or like, I don't trust anybody, I'm not going to trust them. Yeah, yeah. Which Either way, but I think there's also something which IFS would, and, and might think about as a kind of a real self or something that we can dare to trust, and it could take quite a long time to develop that. And but then, I knew a particular therapist who was very helpful. I knew within I'd, I'd seen three therapists. My training school at the time said, "For goodness' sake, Graham, you just you're just too fussy," and I was feeling really stupid. And then I, mm. I I met this guy, and I knew instantly this was going to be a bit like this is going to be the one because I knew he met me.
1: Yeah. Well, that's um, it. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, yeah, so interesting. Thank you. I really hope that'll be. Of use to people listening to this, you know, who may be thinking, I've had a bad experience. I'm not quite sure. What are the rules? And actually, you know, I, I, I'm really grateful for you kind of sharing your honesty. Thank you for that. um
0: I think it's important. I mean, I would say, and also I've tutored many people who've been in therapy and analysis. Most have had very good experiences. Sometimes it's been a bad experience mm. and they've been too scared to leave because they have to be in therapy to finish their training. And I, I yes, just a final thing I want to say that it's important yeah. if that's going on, don't just walk out in a half try to discuss it but then you can have a consultation with another very senior therapist in the field and often so and i've seen like really experienced um mm-hmm. and psychoanalysts for example say to a trainee who's been in an analysis that hasn't felt good you've got to leave yeah other times no let's go back and try to yeah, work yeah, it out. yeah. we can trust their judgment but we also need help always need help yeah which is central feature of attachment theory of
1: <laughs> totally a- absolutely
0: no <laughs> absolutely
1: um so lastly something that started off as something to try that i'm now actually enjoying and really valuing is a bit of word association um okay. I, ask, I do this with everyone does that does that okay. feel okay are you, are you no, i'll, I'll try yeah yeah it's,
0: there's a union influence coming through
1: yeah yeah it was just and i'm realizing you know again getting getting a sense of people and, and hearing the different meanings they give there being no right or wrong meaning, but it just yeah. being quite fascinating and okay. sometimes, sometimes again, um inspiring oh. in, in what people say. So I'll say, I'll say the word and say whatever comes up.
0: So here we go. Dream. Embodied. Acceptance. Um, of everything. Child. Potential. To dance. With. Voyage. Never ending. Friend. My um life I can't think of the word, but my rocks. Your rocks. Oh, how was that? <laughs> great. I could go on actually. I mean goodness knows yeah. I mean I'm sure I'd do it completely differently in five minutes' time, but great.
1: Very cool. Well, Graham, thank you so much. There's so much more I'd I'd love to speak with you about, but You've given so much today, and uh, I found it really inspiring. And thank you so much for coming on. I really value speaking with you.
0: Uh, thanks, Matthew. It's been really good fun and interesting and fascinating. And you know, in, in a way, we learn about ourselves by being with other people and talking to other people and listening to other people. So thanks very much. Thanks, Graham. I hope you enjoyed
1: my conversation with Graham. I found that really inspiring, energizing so interesting i could have listened to him all day if you'd like to learn more about graham and his work check out his website nurturingnatures.co.uk on there you'll find more about graham's story the talks and training he's offered upcoming events and also his books he has authored a number of books including nurturing natures effect and emotion and more you can buy these on amazon or wherever you get your books I'll also include a link to his website in the episode description below. The Journey Home was brought to you in conjunction with Portobello Behavioural Health. Music and production by Matthew Starrett. Edited by Tom Worrell.
0: You've been listening to the Journey Home Podcast.